Welcome to the On The Right Path podcast. I'm Brett Gunning, your host of the show. Today we continue with our Pete Knoll series as we speak to Greg Knoll, one of Pete's four sons. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Greg, great to have the opportunity to talk to you today. I was wondering if we could start with you just talking about some of your early kind of memories of being being a part of a basketball royalty family. Obviously, you were only a couple a couple years old when your dad wins the the, the championship in '59. He's he's coaching the Olympics in '60. Gets to the finals again. But so obviously at that age, you know, um, I don't I, maybe I don't a, a little bit too young. But what what were your yeah, first no, I don't, what were your I first memories of basketball okay. royalty? I I have one that sticks out. Uh, and but to on the first part of it of your beginning, I I don't remember anything. I was like two <laughs> three years old, you know, yeah. when when he won the championship, and then I was one or two years old, or excuse me, uh, two or three years old when he lost the championship, and I was one or right. two years old when he when they won it in '59. Um, so I don't remember. Anything. I don't remember celebrations. I don't remember the phone ringing. I don't remember people coming over the house <laughs> and consoling my mom and dad or her. You know, you know, having a parade. You know, I don't remember any of that. If if, if that actually took place, um, my I had no idea my dad was who he was really. Um, you know, he was he was so humble. Uh, that the makeshift trophy case that we had in the upstairs hallway was actually a book, a combination bookshelf, and um, you know, like it was just very antiquated. Um, and on the top shelf was trophies, but the trophies were my brothers basically, because I thrilled the brothers that played basketball and baseball, and so it pretty much all that room was taken up with their trophies, and so. The thing I knew about, that, you know, about sports, I guess, uh, you know, trying to assimilate, you know, what the trophy actually was. Was it a basketball or a baseball or whatever? Um, and, of course, I couldn't read, so everything was visual. Um, was bait was those trophies because they were gold, you know, and <laughs> the books, which, you know, I walked right by. Both in both directions. I never picked up a book to say my, you know what? Um, <laughs> they can't. They, I think the statute of limitations. They can't take my degree away for, at Pepperdine. Um, but I didn't read books. I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't. I was. A, I love sports, so I read sports books. I read magazines, sports magazines. But yeah, I just couldn't get into books. But that being said, um, I I remember I was in kindergarten. And at Chabot Elementary School, up the street from where we live, and um, we had recess or something. You know, we're out in the playground, and those red rubber balls, right? And I was kind of dribbling the red rubber ball, and uh, the teacher, and I, I don't know what what I did. Maybe I put it through my legs, or I did a leg loop, or whatever. But and then I went from one end to the other and at that time the teacher actually came up to me and said oh my you're going to be another basketball player and i go and i looked at her like you know what 
And she said, well, you know, your dad is a famous coach and your brothers were, are great athletes. And, and I go, oh, okay. You know, I, I it, like, really? Yeah. So I remember going home because it struck me. And I remember asking my mom about my, you know, about dad. And she just kind of shrugged it off and said, yeah, he, he, cause at this point it was like 60, I was five years old, four or five years old. And she explained to me, you know, just kind of matter of factly, yeah, he used to coach. And pretty much that was it. So I really had no idea the history or, or the Olympics or the NC2A or the NIT. I didn't any of I mean, she didn't get into any of that. So, <laughs> um, and because she was so, she downplayed it such, it was like, in one ear and not out the other, but it, was, it never really quite registered. But I was old enough to go to games at that point, uh, Cal right. basketball games. And um, then, you know, you know, my dad used to sit up way up top at Harmon Gym and away from my mom. And I used to sit up by my mom. And um, <laughs> so, because he was a nervous wreck. So, um, you know, I wanted to sit with him too. And she wouldn't, she goes, you don't want to sit next to your father. And I said, you know, why? She goes, well, you're going to get elbowed and bruised, and you, you think you're going to get a spanking. <laughs> that's just how he was when he watched any sport. You know, he, he was into it. it with horse race, he, he'd be riding the horse. I mean, he'd bob up and down. Um, he, boxing on TV, he'd, like, you know, bob and weave. And, I mean, he he was fun to watch. But... And he was an elbower, and he was a a, a knee. He, 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 it was like it, it was funny, actually. Looking back, it was funny. But at the time, you know, I started to anticipate his moves, so I was able to like move away. You know, you know, and I only sat next to him, you know, primarily during basketball games. But I, I really, you know, it was at that point that then I realized as I as things then I started talking to my brothers and. And, and you know, I don't, one of them explained to me, "Oh, your yeah, dad is like you know, you know, famous basketball coach." And <laughs> and so you know, I, I so that was it. You know, that's yeah. a long answer to your question. That's no, I love my it. that's my memory at that so, time. Yeah. So so that then he gets to uh, obviously spend some time in, in the NBA. Do you remember? Obviously, yeah, I do. The, I, I you know, do. San, it was we, the San Diego and Rockets. Yeah, and the Lakers. we remember those days. Well, uh, vividly, because when we left Berkeley, or you know, we lived in Oakland on the border of Oakland and Berkeley. But and my mom was, uh, she was a, a voracious reader, and she was, you know, constantly when we lived in Oakland, uh, it, it was a hodgepodge of people that came over to the house for to talk to her. Um, but they were, it was subject, I mean, Oakland, an Oakland cop of pro- professors, wives, or, or PhD, you know, you know, the, uh, professors at Cal's wives used to come over and, you know, some of my dad's former players and neighbors and, or, or classmates, moms or whatever. I mean, it, it, any given day it was a different group of people that were over at the house. And, you know, when I come home after school, um, she, you know, it was all, I, I just remember it being cigarette smoke, cigarette smoke, laughing and conversation. 
and but it was all but it was that's what I remember. Um, but I also know because my mom read so much that you know she had this incredible insight, and um, she didn't really. I mean, she educated all of us. She educated me, but I was like the youngest, so I was like the tag along, right? She took me everywhere, and her big thing was uh, seize candy. And then there was a Seize Candy on Telegraph in Berkeley, right off campus. Uh, it's no longer there, but that was her, you know, her treat for Friday night. She would go to Seize <laughs> Candy and go up to campus and park. You could park on Telegraph back then, and um, and she'd get her box of chocolates or whatever. And it would be on a weekend when my dad was away, because he was at that point he was the athletic director at Cal, and. Um, so he traveled with the football team if they were on a road trip. And so it was it was basically a long weekend. And um so and because she had her she had to have her seeds candy fixed, I would tag along with her. And it just so happened that unbeknownst to her, that it was to, it was coinciding with a march down telegraph to Alcatraz, which was Alcatraz Boulevard, which was straight down telegraph. Um, Alcatraz Boulevard was a crossover between Berkeley and Oakland, and the Oakland police set up a barricade, basically to stop the marchers from getting into Oakland. And uh, we got we couldn't get out, we couldn't drive out on Telegraph because all the stu- I mean they were climbing over cars, they were they flooded the street, and it, they were I don't even know what they were marching. You know, it was, I'm sure it was over Vietnam War or free speech or something, but it was like, it was crazy. And my mom was like, she was, I, you know, she just, she didn't panic. She just trying to figure out, okay, now the hell am I going to get out of here? And, and with Greg. And so we, we marched with the marchers, man. We, we went down telegraph and um, she said, if you see a camera duck, because I don't, and I said, why? Because she goes, I don't want your, I don't want a picture taken and it get back to your father <laughs> that we're marching <laughs> with the marchers down telegraph. And so uh, she goes, stay on the lookout. So I, I you know, I'm looking out and, and uh, uh, you know, film crews are out there just back in the day, man. Film crews are staff at the, at the border, not, you know, they're not running with the marchers. So we thought we've got, we went down about a, I don't know, half a mile or whatever. And we, you know, because Alcatraz was also the elementary school, um, St. Augustine's was uh, on Alcatraz. It was like going up Alcatraz and again on the border of Oakland, Berkeley, but it was considered Oakland. And, um, but so I, then I knew, I kind of knew where we were. And so I was able to tell my mom, you know, how to navigate, you know, to get get us home. We literally had to walk home, and uh, we did walk home. And uh, so my memory was of what was going on in Berkeley at that time, right? And and Cal and Oakland with the Panthers and the uh, Hell's Angels, and I mean, it was going on, man. It, I mean, it, the whole scene. And, you know, Oakland and Berkeley was crazy. You know, you know, Martin Luther King got shot, Robert Kennedy got killed. And I mean, it was crazy. It was just nuts. And, and I was like exposed to all of this. And my mom, 
took that time to explain to me because I really didn't know who Martin Luther King was. I knew I heard the name. My mom revered him as she did uh, RFK, and uh, she as she did JFK. But um, she, but she was, you know, it, it really hit her hard. And um, so, anyway, we leave. You know, when my dad got the, the job down in San Diego, we leave Berkeley and we go down to San Diego, and it was like going <laughs> to a retirement home. I mean, it was, yeah, it was going from, you know, total chaos and mayhem, and that was order of business, and you know, it was like crazy. Uh, it, but it was control crazy because I, I never felt danger because I just felt, you know, with my brothers and my mom and dad that I was protected. Uh, but then when I, we moved down to San Diego, all my brothers were gone. Two brothers were in the Navy, and uh, Roger's just Roger's the next oldest brother. And, again, I was told I was not a mistake. My mom always said I was a wanted child. But Roger <laughs> is like Roger's the next oldest brother of mine, right? My oldest is like 13 years older than me. My next Tommy is like Pete Jr. is like 13. Tommy is like. 12 years and uh, 10 years and Roger's seven. Okay. So, but I was a wanted child. Okay. <laughs> I was a wanted child, but they were, you know, Roger started his first year at Cal and it was my first year down in San Diego. And I knew nobody down in San Diego and the whole culture was different. Everybody's into surfing. It was like, you know, nobody was into sports per se. Baseball and football primarily, and I love baseball. I play baseball, but you know it's they don't play year round. And you know basketball was like a four letter word down there. Um, so consequently, you know I had to adjust to that lifestyle and or you know just the vibe. And um, and and I did. Um, and then you know so the four years we were down there, um, it was it was. It was magical. It, you know, it was my first year in high school. When I the fourth year was my first my first year in high school. Our last year there because the Rockets moved to Houston. Uh, our third year, the fourth year, my dad commuted from San Diego to Houston. He was part of the transaction. You know that he didn't realize. In fact, he didn't even know that the. He, I think he sensed it, but you know there was a lot of rumor about the Rocket organization moving to. Uh, Omaha, Nebraska. Um, I mean, the the owner. The, there were three owners. Bob Breitbart was the the face of ownership, and then there were two silent partners, or you know, they had a majority of the stake, and they were L.A. attorneys, and they were always looking to. They bought the franchise. They bought the expansion franchise in San Diego, but their intent was always to sell it for a profit. And yeah. so when the Houston deal came up, then that's when they that's when the Rockets went to Houston. So, um, uh, but my dad was part of that deal, unbeknownst to him, yeah. that he was part of the deal because, you know, he had had a pretty good reputation at that point. And so, um, you know, he was commuting. It was my first year in high school, and um, it wasn't. He didn't want to, you know, my mom, I I don't even know how the conversation went, but there was no way that I know for a fact my mom wasn't going to move to Texas. So <laughs> um, 
Now, whether or not that played into my dad taking the Lakers job, I don't know. Um, yeah. I just know that we didn't go, we didn't move to Houston. And uh, my dad got the Lakers out. So then we moved from San Diego to L.A. And that was, enough, that to me, that was like, I didn't want to move, you know. And, you know, I'd already moved. And I was really comfortable and happy in San Diego. And then we moved to L.A. And it was like a whole different, man, it was, that was rough. Um, but you know, would, and, and they had won it the year before the Lakers, they won the championship and my dad's first year with the Lakers, that, you know, that was, uh, they lost in the finals to the Knicks and, yeah. uh, it, and, and then the, that off season going into my dad's second year, um, well, Elgin, Elgin Baylor had retired and that, and then in the off season, actually the first year my dad was with the uh, Rock with the Lakers. Elgin had retired. The next year in the off season, after they lost in the finals, Will jumped to the ABA, and that you know he wasn't going to resign with the Lakers. You know he and Jack and Cook who owned the Lakers, they they didn't get along, and then so Will basically retired, and then. Um, the next year, Jerry West retired. So in three successive years, uh, you had the three stalwarts of the Lakers gone. And so my dad had to build the franchise basically from scratch. But, you know, it came painfully because Bill Sharm wanted to play veterans. He didn't want rookies. My dad was, you know, draft. You know, he loved the draft. And, you know, he, and that was back in the day when you could, you know, there was like 18 rounds. And he used every one of them. And um, so rookie camp, there'd be 18 guys that were drafted that would come to uh, San Diego in particular, um, as I remember, uh, 18 drafted at rookie camp. And then they, you know, they didn't have a, a summer pro leagues weren't even going on then. So basically it was just 18 guys and they scrimmage and then, They'd weed out five five guys, bring them to veteran camp, or six guys, and bring them to veteran camp. And depending upon how many veterans or how many roster spots were open, so the Rockets were basically comprised. They were very young, and the Lakers were medium to well. With West retiring, they were they were and they were old, they were. My dad was kind of you know they had he he wanted to reshape the franchise. He wanted to reshape and basically cook. If you recall, well, you may be young, but he also owned the Washington Redskins. And they were known then with George Allen as a coach, they were known to get veterans. And mm. they made all these deals to get a lot of Rams that played for uh, uh, the Redskins. But it was a veteran-led team, and they were very good. And so you got three guys that are Hall of Famers that retire. And so the the general the the coach Sharman and the owner Cook wanted veterans to replace you know trade your draft pick trade the draft pick you know or you know let's make a trade trade Gail Goodrich trade you know this guy that guy you know whatever I mean the only commodity they really had was Gail Goodrich so um, you know, he, you know, the, the, he got Elmore Smith in the deal and, you know, Elmore Smith kind of, he was, a, he was not even a poor man's little chamber, but he played, he blocked shots. 
he gets you like 12, 13, 14 rebounds a night. He gets 10, 12 points. Um, he was serviceable, but he wouldn't will. And, you know, it, it, it was it was arduous. And, and when he was he was there for five years, four years, and, um, you know, he did the Kareem deal. Uh, basically, because of the draft picks you know, he amassed, um, much to the chagrin of Jack and Cook and Bill Sharman, but, you know, it wasn't like there was any animosity, but with Sharman or my dad, but Cook was like, every day was an adventure because she didn't know what side of the bed he was going to wake up on. And so, <laughs> you know, and he was, he trusted Sharman, I think, more than he trusted my dad, but Cook wasn't a basketball guy. He was a businessman and he was used to winning. And, uh, you know, the Lakers, they didn't really, they, they were in the playoffs, but they didn't really win-win. And, you know, to where they won, like, you know, the, the divisions or anything like that, they got in the playoffs. But, you know, that wasn't good enough, obviously, you know. And so, anyway, long story short, I mean, he was able to amass the draft picks and, and, and or the, the young players like like uh, uh, Brian Winters, uh, I think Jimmy Price that he drafted the year before. Uh, and then coupled with his draft picks of Dave Myers and uh, Junior Bridgman and uh, uh, Brian Winters. I don't know if I mentioned them already, but those guys were all in the included in the trade to get Kareem from Milwaukee. Yep. And yep. that kind of, you know, then uh, the following year, uh, you know, it was before free agent. It was like, I don't, you know, and when we were putting together the documentary, we were trying to get some clarity on how Gail Goodrich in his contract year ended up with New Orleans and the Lakers got two draft picks out of that and they got uh, a player, uh, Louis Nelson or somebody. And um, But they were future first-round picks. And I, I just remember my dad saying at the time that if you're ever going to make a deal, which I don't know, it wasn't necessarily a trade, so and it wasn't a free signing, but it was. But you, but players were free to move. But I think the NBA teams that had the rights to the player, or I don't. And I, rights is probably not the right word, but I think the team that player was leaving to go to another team, there was a compensation, and the general manager or the owner or whatever, whoever the decision maker, could kind of direct where this player could go. So it wasn't free agency, but I don't know gotcha. what the nuances were back then because again, this is before free agency. So yeah. long story short, those two first future draft uh, draft picks were Kenny Carr and uh, uh, Magic Johnson. So uh, the argument could be made that they the that the, well, yeah, I mean, you know, then Showtime starts. You know, my dad retired in '76. And right. they didn't get magic until '79, so it was. It, but it it did come by way of New Orleans, you know, the traffic they got from New Orleans on the Gil Goodrich deal. So, um, you know, it, it, again, we I felt it was very important that we put it in the documentary that we that we did. Um, but we really and we actually, you know, we had a soundbite from Stu Lance, who at that time, who was a rock. My dad drafted with Stanley, who later became. A Laker, my dad traded for him, 
and then he became, and he still is, you know, the color commentator for the for the Lakers yep. thirty yep. plus years. So I think we tried to soak Stu's memory, and he remembered it kind of the way I did, but he wasn't really sure. Nobody really was. And uh, <laughs> when I say nobody, I mean nobody. And so, but I remember talking to a, uh, a buddy of mine who actually wrote for the LA Times uh, at the time. He used to write. Uh, a column on the LA Times sports section and um, he always wanted to keep updates on how we were doing with my dad's movie. So I told him, well, we, you know, we just sat with, with uh, Stu and, and, um, and it, you know, interesting anecdote. So I, you know, I, I relayed the story to him and of course the LA paper, you know, you got some news, right? You ever, you know, Showtime is still beloved. So he put it in his column, a little paragraph in his column because it was like kind of like a one or, one or two paragraphs, and the uh, next step, it was a random column on just observations and um, that he witnessed. And so he put this little blurb in his column. Man, it was like he got a thousand, he got a phone call from Bill Burka. And Burka at that time was the general manager of the New Orleans Jazz. And um, Burka said, well, that's not how it went down. But he didn't explain how it went down. I said, well, ask him, you know, how it went down. You know, we'd like to know. Well, he never returned the call. So we don't know. But we know that Jerry had to take it, you know, he had to put a retraction the next day saying that, uh, you know, I, you know, apparently that's not how the deal went. And, you know, it was like a, it was, you know, a a cluster F. And so we basically had to take that out of the movie because it was not substantiated. So, um uh, but, you know, again, it was on, and of course, my dad's not alive, and Jerry Colangelo doesn't recall. We asked Wayne Embry. We asked, <laughs> you know, uh, there, you know, the only person we could ask really was Elgin, uh, but he, you know, trying to get a hold of Elgin is like trying to get a hold of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's like it was impossible back then. And, um, and I think he was going through his lawsuit with Donald Sterling with the Clippers and all that stuff. So he wasn't taking a lot of phone calls. Um, but the only person was Burka, but Burka's spin on it was, was not how I remembered my dad saying something to the effect that, you know, if, if a player is going to go to a team, you know, a bad team, you know, again, they had Maravich, you know, but it, they were still bad, um, that it was, you were going to get a high draft pick back. Well, they did. They got two first round picks, future first round picks. Um, but it was the beginning these, of showtime. These are these are amazing stories. We, we literally could go on forever. I wanted to see if you could just talk. Uh, obviously, the the um, purpose of this podcast we're doing is is just to talk about the uh, amazing impact that your dad had on on so many people. And and here it is. He had he had a great run in college. You know, um, he, he has a, this great run in the in the NBA. Um, I was wondering if you could just talk about kind of life after that. So now it's, you know, the the big man camp. Obviously, he did a bunch of clinics and teaching, his his friendship with Bobby Knight. But just just speak to what you saw through your eyes of just his ability to um, impact and influence just the amazing number of lives that he did after kind of after his coaching career he had, well he he definitely had a life after he was away you know he retired 
from the game. You know, like when he retired from the Lakers, he was out of the game. I mean, you know, he came back into the game as a consultant, but he was not, right. you know, as a consultant, not as a decision maker. Um, but the camp started, uh, my dad retired in, if I recall, June of 76 or 75. I don't know. I'm not sure. Don't, don't go by my mind. It's either 75 or 76. I think it was 76. Um, and June of 76. And, um, Kermit, Don Ford, and Kiki Vandeweghe. Well, actually, it started with just those two. It started with with Kermit and with Don Ford. And uh, my dad had dra- obviously drafted both. And so they uh, want to work in the off season. On you know, they wanted to work out with my dad. And I don't. Uh, neither one of them really knew my dad had been a coach. Uh, but they're college coaches because that's who they're because Sharma was kind of he he just wasn't into rookies man he didn't he was he just felt was a babysit so it, <laughs> you know he was I mean, Bill Sharma's great man I, you know God rest his soul but he he really had a low tolerance for for rookies and didn't play him he didn't coddle to him he didn't do anything with him and so consequently there were some they they were I I don't want to call them babies in that sense but they were young man. And um, I think they both they both operated separately, Ford and Kermit, uh, but they both called their college coaches because uh, in Kermit's case, he felt like he was going into his third year of his contract, which was his rookie contract, and he was going to be bounced from the league. He was going to get waived, and then his career was over. And with Ford, he had another year to go in it, but he felt like, you know, he needed work. So each of them called their college coaches, and they both said, "Well, you know, why don't you give? Why don't you talk to Pete and Pete Newell and see if he can, you know, work with you a little bit?" And they were, you know, I can only imagine the expressions on their faces when they heard my dad had been a coach, because then they heard the story from their coaches about my dad. And um, long story short, they worked with my dad, and then Kiki's father, Ernie. Always had his ear to the ground, man. I mean, he knew anything and everything that was going on in L.A. with basketball. He, he was a podiatrist, or not that. He was a, uh, oh, God, uh, pediatrician. And um, he he was in the same office building, doctor's building, as Curling Joke. And so he, and his office was was on the same floor with Curlin and Joe. So he'd see a lot of NBA players come through. And I guess Kermit was there because he had a, he had some health issues with his knee or his ankle or his back or whatever. And, you know, Ernie was just a very co- uh, cordial guy. And he asked Kermit what he was up to. And, long, you know, long story short, Kermit was telling him, that, well, I'm working out with Pete Newell. And, and, and Ernie knew who my dad, obviously knew who my dad was. And Kiki, I think, was a sophomore junior high school. And um, so, where do you guys work out? Well, at Loyola, old, you know, the old gym. And so he goes, oh, "Okay, what time do you guys work out at?" He goes, "Like seven in the morning." And you know, Ernie's like, "Jesus Christ!" And how long does it go till till noon? He goes, "So you guys are working out for five hours?" I mean, it was like, uh, uh, like, you know, incredulous. And so Ernie came by to watch. And um, 
and saw the kind of the drills my dad was putting him through. And so he went up to my dad after, and he said, would you mind if my son came uh, and worked out with, with these guys? He's a pretty good basketball player. And, and my dad, you know, he thought that, okay, yeah, for sure. Uh, but I want to get a fourth. So the fourth ended up being Kenny Carr, as I remember. Um, so each player was matched up with the other. So Ford was matched up with Kermit and, and, or they'd switch off and, and Kiki was part of the original four, you know, of, you know, if you want to call it that, um, and then remained so all the way to the end. And, um, you know, he became, he was a player at it and then he became a teacher at it and, you know, the rest of history. But yeah, that's so, and, and the only reason my dad did it you know, that summer was because he wasn't with, affiliated with the Lakers. He didn't want to step on Bill Sherman's toes or whoever the coach is going to be the following year. Uh, I think it was uh, – I'm not sure who the, following, who the coach was the following year. Um, but he didn't want to step on, on coach's toes by going out, going out of his lane to work with these guys, even though they needed it. And these they, these coaches were incapable of, or because of patience or knowledge, were incapable of working with these guys. And so my dad took it upon himself. So he basically did it, you know, with no, you know, you don't have to pay me anything. You don't have to do anything. And that remained, you know, that remained, you know, from beginning to end of the camp. Uh, the players never had to pay, you know, anything, you know, tuition for the camp. And, you know, of course, he was, you know, Bobby Knight told my dad a thousand times, you're an idiot. You, should, you know, you should be charging these guys $20,000 to go to your camp. You know, my brother, one of my brothers basically said the same thing. Of course, you know, when my, I remember my brother telling me the reaction from my from our dad when he said that. Well, you know, you put, get the money, you put it away, give it to the grandkids. You can, you know, and he so he mapped out what he wanted to say to my dad. My dad looked at him like steely-eyed and said, you know, you don't always take from the game. You give something back. You know, God damn it. You know, so, I mean, he, I mean they, there was no way in heaven he was going to take any money at all from the camp. Yeah, because he just felt the game was, you know, was so good to him that that it was never about money with him ever. Um, and he he just it wasn't how he was cut, man. He just it it wasn't it wasn't monetary gain. It was like just and he lived his life in such a way that because he wasn't money driven or success driven or I mean. Literally, you know, I, I'm hopscotching here, but I remember hearing the story that when he, before the start of the game at Cal, he'd walk on the court and the whole place would erupt. I mean, they'd standing ovation and put everybody clapping, you know, and my dad was oblivious to it. And so until somebody said, you know, you know, he, you know, do you hear these people? They just, they, they love you. They just. You know, you know, you. I mean, the other team is clapping. You know, you know, when you walk on the court, and for right. the start of the game. And my dad was so taken aback by that that he felt like he was getting too much attention. So he snuck around the building and entered the court behind the scores table by the to the bench. So he didn't have to walk cross court to the bench, and so. 
you know, he went, you know, basically he didn't want the adulation. He didn't want the attention. He didn't want the, he just, you know, that wasn't who he was about, man. So, and he never was about that. And um, so it was like the matter at hand and it wasn't all the things that came with it. You know, he could give a rap, you know, what about all the, all the frills, all the, all the extras. It was all about the, the task at hand. And the technique for him, he kept it very simple. It was coaching, teaching, and, and you know, and evaluating. <laughs> and that was pretty much his life, man, in basketball. That was his life. And it wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the fame. It wasn't about anything, you know. It, it wasn't about anything. Um, it was all just, he just kept it really simple. And, um, you know, but, you know, but it was, a, it, he came from a simple time. Okay, and you know we live in a world now where you ha- you have to have money in order to do the things you want to do with your family. Um, so you never begrudge anybody. I mean, I, when I worked for Converse, I remember you know again I'm hopscotching, but I remember when I worked at Converse. I started in 1980, and it was right at the boom of paying college coach money to wear the shoe. And you didn't have to work with the AD, you didn't have to work with school, you just work with the coach. And uh, we had, you know, Dean Smith, we had, we had, you know, the Kentucky coaches, the Louisville coach, we had the the blue collar program, pretty much. We didn't have UCLA, we didn't have, uh, but we did, well, we had North Carolina, you know, we had blue collar uh, schools, um, blue, excuse me, blue blood school, college. And these guys were making twenty-five to fifty thousand dollars a year just for the team to wear the shoe, and uh, my dad was blown away. And then you know NBA guys were getting you know certain NBA guys were getting shoe contracts, and so and they were getting paid you know some money too. So and my you know this was during when my dad's camp was going, and you know it, of course my dad was big on footwork and feet your feet you know everything starts with your feet and moves up and so footwork was essential to what he was teaching and he was very cognizant of a guy's shoes only from the or his feet and by the <laughs> byproduct was his shoes and and players would blow out of their shoes because they were doing you know they were bad shoes and i don't want to say they're all converse <laughs> but we were we were one of the guilty uh, companies. Pony was enough. I mean, guys were blowing out of their shoes, and my dad was getting—he was getting teed off. He just said, "Jesus Christ!" You know, horrible product. These guys are stealing money, and they're wearing—they're wearing shoes they shouldn't be wearing. And and he went on. He, but he couldn't believe the amount—the amount of money being spent by shoe companies for coaches and players. And, um, and you know, it, it, so if you kind of fast forward the tape, uh, you know, I, I'd be hard-pressed to believe that he turned down money if he were coaching. Uh, if it was basically, but he would do his homework. He'd make sure that it was the best shoe uh, and it wasn't, a, it would have been an Adidas. It would have been, you know, who I, whoever, whoever had the best shoe. Uh, and then who knows what he would have done with the money. He would have. In the fact that many would, I don't know if it would have gone in with pocket, but right. you know, right. yeah, I'm just saying that it was a he's of a he was of a different generation. Now, if you go to Wooden now, Wooden didn't get any money from Adidas. 
when he was when he was uh, his last year of coaching or his last couple years of coaching. Uh, but when he started doing his camp, he had a deal with Beta, and Beta was paying him buku money, <laughs> and um, uh, and then they would give free shoes. At, you know, I worked those camps, so and I'd hear you know I'd hear all kind of stuff. So, um, uh, but, it, but I was also part of the distribution team. You know, I was I was at that time I was in school. I was in college. So I would I would be part of the distribution of the shoes and the shirt t-shirts and camp shirts or whatever, and so just uh, just a m- unbelievable amount of and it was the worst shoe. It was a, it was just a bad shoe, but he endorsed the <laughs> shoe. Okay, and it was and they were free shoes for the campers, so they didn't give a shit. they didn't care, and um, but I remember they wanted us to wear the shoe. Uh, and I remember I wore it and it wasn't very comfortable. And I was, I was, uh, even though at Pepperdine we wore Converse, um, my favorite shoe was Adidas, the superstar. And so, uh, nothing compared to that shoe. But I remember one day wearing the, the beta shoe, as we were told to do, and, and we were on our feet all day. And, uh, in my, I never felt pain. Like I did. I mean, my feet were sore. You know, we were playing, and then, you know, we play at lunchtime or whatever at night, and it was like just painful. And I said, "This got to be the worst shoot ever made." And right. um, but in, but I guess what I'm saying is is that, and I I know my dad was probably approached by shoe companies, um, but that was Merv Lopes. I mean, Merv handled the business part, so I don't know. But no money yeah. went back to my dad. So I think Reebok was in one year and. Uh, uh, I don't know. Tiger might have been Asics might have been in there a year, whatever. But it was never a deal my dad made. It was a deal that yeah. I think Merv made, or if there was a deal, it was all done through Merv. But my dad wouldn't take any money. So yeah. uh, you know, and I, you know, again, you'd have to talk to Merv, you know, in the conversations Merv would, Merv would have, because Merv would hear too that I'm sure that. You know, you ought to be, ought to be, you know, you guys ought to be charging these NBA guys, you know, and, and charge these coaches that, that come over and watch, you know, charge them an admission fee. I mean, any way to make a buck, <laughs> basically. The, the, hey, the, I, the I, noise. That, that's that's uh, that's how I um, got to first be around your dad, and and that it was literally at the Final Four, Merv, and your dad said, hey, if anybody can. Uh, Anybody can afford a plane ticket. You're welcome to come and observe the camp in, in Honolulu. And I remember thinking, like, oh, this is awesome. I can, I can fly out to Hawaii. And you know, that was the, that was the beginning of my um, of great friendship with your dad. But well, you we got to wrap you know, it up uh, here. No, let me let me just add to that, okay? Because I recall you telling me the story of you and Jay Wright going. You were at. I don't know if you guys were together. In Hawaii. I don't I don't know, but I remember you we were playing in the Maui. Story. Yeah, we were playing in the Maui Classic, it, and we got to it, yeah. Time you were afraid. You were you were actually afraid to approach my dad, and Jay said, "No, goddamn it, you know, or whatever." Jay said, "You know, let's you know <laughs> go and introduce ourselves or whatever." And you know, and you were like blown away at how how how, come, how easy going my dad was. It was like oh yeah, because in your oh, eyes, yeah. he was like this. God and you know he was anything but that. Incredible, incredible. Yeah, I mean he was, and that was you know. I'll let you wrap up. Go ahead. 
No, it's, again, the, the, you know, you were just thankful to, to hear the insights from, from you. <laughs> As we said, you were literally born into uh, a basketball I had no choice, man. I, can't, I came into a family. basketball family. Yeah. No, <laughs> but it's, it's, you know, it's, um, it's incredible just that the number of lives he's impacted, whether it was you as a father or as, as us as friends <clears throat> or fellow coaches. And that, that's been the purpose of just this whole uh, podcast series is to, is to be able to, you know, just talk about his life and, and ho- hope to pass on the things that uh, were most important, you know, to him. And, and I think you summed it up the best. And one of the last things you said is, he he was just about the the simple things, you know, the yeah, game of basketball. He and, didn't he didn't complicate, you know. He made things very simple, okay, and yeah. he, he very much like his life. And it, you know, it was he basically wrote the book on keep it simple, stupid. Um, yeah. So it wasn't complicated. He just, you know, it, it, there were chess matches, obviously, when you coach and when you general manage. You gotta, you know, your your commodities, your your personnel, your, I mean, you know, there's a lot of chess playing going along, but, you know, and that's complicated in a sense, but it, it's kind of simple because I'm going to move, I'll move this piece over here. I'll move that piece over there. And you know what right. I mean? So it was like, but it wasn't complicated to him. Yeah. And so he, he didn't make it complicated and he simplified everything. And yeah. that's just pretty, that's, you know, he lived to 93, man. I mean, he lived that, I, I can honestly tell you, man, from the very first time I was cognizant, he was my father, uh, to the day he passed away, I mean, I was like 51 or two when he passed away. Um, I mean, holy moly. I mean, I mean, there there was no change in the weather, man. He was, he was who... He put himself out to be, and over the course of time, especially when I was working with Converse, at Converse, I mean, I was at these basketball events, and um, I'd be approached by people when they see my name tag, because, you know, I didn't put, I'm Pete old son. I mean, you know, it was like, <laughs> you know, I didn't advertise that, so I didn't put myself out. I was like, unlike my brothers, I, I didn't want to coach, so I was often asked why I didn't get into coaching, what? A is a bug. I never got the coaching bug. And B, I didn't want to coach anybody like me. I was a pain in the ass. So, <laughs> um, it, you know, it was very easy. Especially, you know, when I was telling you, I was working at wooden camps. I worked like 11 weeks of basketball camp. I hated kids. And, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of kidding. But, I mean, it was a babysit, <laughs> basically. And because it was, it was different age groups, you know, of, of kids were going to camp, you know, the high school kids and elementary school kids. And, uh, and I was working the Wooden Camp. I was working the Jerry West Camp, the Little Sherman Camp, Superstar. Uh, I worked at Stanford Camp up, nor- up north. And, uh, I mean, I worked the whole summer, you know, for 25 bucks a week, man. Stanford paid 50, <laughs> which was like, wow, okay. But, yeah, 25 bucks a week, man. That was my summer job. So um, I had no money at the, end, at the end of the summer, but, you know, and I had a great time that whole summer, except the camp itself. <laughs> and by the last week, man, I was done. I was so burnt and so fried of not basketball, but just of kids and babysitting. And, you know, it just, it wasn't, you know, I, I, I would, I, I, 
man, it wasn't me. It wasn't for me. So <laughs> I got I got onto the business side of it, and um, and like I said, when I was with Converse, I'd be approached by various people about the time they met my dad at camp or a clinic or whatever the case may be, and to, you know. Uh, or I talked to dad on the phone and, you know, he gave me his phone number and, you know, oh my God, you know, and it's like he, he didn't discriminate on with anybody. He, he took more pleasure out of talking to young coaches and because, to give them guidance as to the path they were choosing. <laughs> he, he wasn't trying to discourage young coaches, but he wasn't like, you know, Painting it with roses, with rose petals on on the path. I mean, it's a it's a tough grind, man. And it's like, are you if you're up for the grind, you're, but start at the bottom. And so he he loved talking to young coaches, especially high school coaches. So um, and that came that you know and you know I think I told you this the other day. Raleigh was a high school coach. I think the first time he met him, Raleigh Montemino. Yep. And so um, Raleigh was touched enough. Uh, that he remembered, you know, he, he probably met my dad when my dad was still coaching and was considered, you know, Pete Newell. Um, yeah. And, you know, Raleigh, you know, Raleigh, I don't, you know, I, I have no clue because I never met Raleigh, but Raleigh, Raleigh had the persona that he didn't give SHIT about nothing. It's like Raleigh had, Raleigh was on the road, man. Raleigh was going to get it done. One where he was going to rise up the ladder, and he did. Um but at the time, he was just getting started, and you know, I'm assuming, you know, I don't think he was in, he was a college coach yet, or even on a staff. I think he was a high school coach, but I'm not sure. I just remember that um, he was he was taken aback that my dad was so approachable, and he was like yeah. a nobody, and he ma- he made you feel like somebody. Because you're part yeah. of the family, man. You're part of the basketball, and if you were up for the task, you're going to take that plunge, man. You know, you're going to, you know, okay, then this is what you should do. But I advise you start at this level, learn how to teach, and then you know, and then graduate on up. You know, like start at the with the fresh. You know, I'm not again. I'm just paraphrasing, but start the freshman level of high school. And work your way up to the varsity level, and then you know if you get a head job and you're ready, then you, you know, you take that head job at that school level. Then at that point, you know, JCs were still uh, wanted jobs, and you go to the JC level, then you, you can jump to the four-year level. Then you know, and then you know there was a path, and but it was a grind, and it is a grind, still it's a grind, um, but it, but it's really a you who it's more of a who you know. Not what you know, business, and it's all. It's kind of always been that way, but, um, but yeah, that, but that, but his whole thing was he was a lot more comfortable talking to young coaches, um, yeah. and spending time with young coaches, um, just to you know, it just you know, because he wanted to emphasize to young coaches about the, um, uh, importance of teaching the game. Yep, yep. No, well, let, let's let's end it on that. That's a great note to end it on, and. and uh, I can't thank you again enough. We we could uh, we could talk for hours because you, you you have some amazing stories. But thank you thank you again for your time today, right, and uh, can't right, thank man. you enough. Thank, no, th- thank care. you.